Well, this morning, with Easter uh, approaching next week, we want to take, um, set aside our study in the Gospel of John and consider two topics that are central to the Christian faith. We want to look today at the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, and then next week on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we'll study our Lord's resurrection, um, declaring Himself to be the very Son of God. Today, I want to invite you to Calvary. Set aside our study of Gospel of John. Come with me to uh, Calvary, where our Lord is being crucified. You'll note that there are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Apostle John, standing near the cross. There are three crosses on this hill. The two on the sides are, two on the ends, are two thieves being punished for their crimes. In the middle is a man named Jesus Christ. He's got blood, his own blood on his face and his body, saliva on his face, a crown of thorns on his head. He's bloodied. He is um, beaten up. He's bruised. He's scarred in his flesh. And he's being crucified and condemned to die. Now as believers, as we live in the shadow of the cross, we know that this is the culmination of redemptive history. That from beginning of time, God had ordained this and planned this, and this is the height and the culmination of God's redemptive plan. And we know as believers that our Lord's death on the cross was the greatest sacrifice ever made. That His death was the purest act of love ever carried out in the history of the world. We know that. But to those who are present that day at Calvary, for all those soldiers and passers-by, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders of Israel, for them, there was nothing special about this man's death. Historians say by the time of our Lord's death, the Roman government had crucified over 30,000 Jews in and around Jerusalem. It was a common event, crucifixion of robbers, murderers, rioters. And so, to, to all those gathered around these three crosses on that fateful day, it was a normal crucifixion. The Roman soldiers had no idea whom they were tormenting. As far as they were concerned, they were simply crucifying another criminal under orders from Pilate, their commander-in-chief. From 9 o'clock to noon, Calvary was a busy place. Punishment was being carried out. But there was nothing special. There was nothing extraordinary about Calvary that day. Two robbers again and one delusional man claiming to be the king of the Jews dying on the cross. In fact, for the Roman centurions, for the passers-by, for the citizens of Jerusalem, it was a common sight. It was a common event. All those present were blind to the significance of our Lord's death. And they were all joining in and mocking, scoffing, and even raining curses upon our Lord. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he's almost unnoticed by the world. He's almost ignored and neglected. The question is, did God notice? Did God notice? 
Maybe as a young person in a church, when you first heard the story, you, you thought maybe God will come down and rescue the Lord. Maybe this is when Christ turns into a hero. Maybe at the last minute, God will come down, perform a miracle, and rescue Jesus, and become victorious over all his persecutors. But nothing like that happens. He dies as prophesied in the scriptures. Well, where was God? Why was God silent at the death of his only son? Why didn't God do something? Why didn't he act? Why didn't he intervene on the behalf of his only son? Well, from our study in Matthew 27, as we read this morning, we see that God was not silent. God was not silent. God did incredible things at Calvary. God the Father intervened. He stretched forth his arms. He suspended natural law. And he divinely performed six miracles. Starting at noon, everything changed. It was no longer a normal, typical crucifixion. The Gospel writer Matthew tells us, in the verses that we read this morning, that God performed six distinct miracles during the last hours of our Lord's death. That God the Father performed six distinct miracles during the last hours of our Lord's death. And these miracles reveal that our Lord's death was anything but ordinary. That God was making His will known. He was declaring truth. He was making statements through these miracles. These miracles revealed to, to us, to all students of the scriptures, reveals to us God's perspective on the cross. They reveal that the cross was significant to our God. And they, these miracles reveal God's response to, to the death of His only Son. And I think you'll, you'll see God's heart in all of this. God was not a passive spectator in the murder of his son. He was an active participant, revealing himself to a lost world. Well, let's go to verse 45, and you will find the first miracle of God. It's supernatural darkness. Supernatural darkness. Matthew 27:45 says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Darkness came over all the land. If you were to go back in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, you will note that when our Lord was born, the night sky around Bethlehem was filled with supernatural light. Luke 2.9 says that the glory of the Lord radiated around the shepherds in the field. John says in chapter 1, verse 4, and verse 9, that the light of men, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And who is that? That is Jesus Christ. In his death, the opposite occurred. The first miraculous sign that accompanied the death of this true light, the death of Christ, was not light, was not glorious light, but it was darkness. Mark 15.25 tells us that our Lord's crucifixion began at the third hour, so 9 a.m. Three hours later, so it's six hour, it's high noon, 12 in the afternoon. And Matthew says, 
darkness came over all the land. The sun stopped shining. It was like dead of night. It's not possible to determine the scope of the darkness, how wide it was. Some commentators believe it was just on Calvary. Some say Jerusalem. Some say Asia Minor. Some say the whole world. The Greek word for land here, gay, can be also be translated earth. And it says all the earth, all the regions, all the land. It certainly was not a dark cloud passing by, obscuring the sun. It was not any kind of a natural eclipse. In fact, Passover always fell on full moon on the full moon, making a solar eclipse an impossibility. The sun and the moon are on the opposite ends, opposite sides. Um, early uh, extra-biblical documents suggest that darkness was worldwide. It was over all the land. Darkness came upon earth. Right. Now, what is the meaning of this darkness? Can we know for what reason God caused the great darkness to cover the land during the crucifixion of His Son? In the scriptures, darkness, and specifically the darkness covering the sun, is a sign of God's judgment. Alright? Old Testament prophets prophesied again and again um, that darkness signaled the judgment, the wrath, the condemnation of God. Isaiah 5.30 When one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. Isaiah 13.10 and 11 The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to their arrogance. Humble the pride of the ruthless. The prophet Joel writes in Joel 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of blackness. And Joel says in 2.31, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. One more verse, Amos 5.20. Amos says, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness? Will, will it not be pitch black without a ray of brightness? Amos 5.20. And the Bible is clear, darkness signaled the judgment of God. This supernatural darkness was a sign of God's wrath and God's judgment. The question is then, upon whom? Who is God judging here? Some might, some might contend, nation of Israel. Obvious. The, Israel, the leaders of Israel, the Jewish people, they wholesale abandoned and rejected the, uh, the uh, authority of Christ, therefore God is judging Israel. No, God is judging the Roman government because they are actually carrying out the crucifixion. It's upon the soldiers. It's upon those who are mocking Christ. No. The answer has to be no. Their judgment is still to come. 
But this darkness does not sign the judgment of these people. You might be surprised to find out that this darkness signaled the judgment of God upon Jesus Christ. Upon Jesus Christ. If I could sum it up in an economy of words, we could just say that hell came to Calvary that day. I mean, hell came to the cross that day. Our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Christ, He became the focus of God's judgment. For the first time in eternity, God was angry with His Son. God was enraged. God the Father had holy wrath towards His beloved Son. Why? Because on the cross, our Lord bore on His body the sins of the world. He took in His flesh all the sins of all the men in human history. Meaning, our pride, our immorality, our impurity, jealousy, hatred, rape, murder, all of it was placed upon him, was reckoned to Christ. And therefore, the supernatural darkness signaled the judgment of God coming upon Jesus Christ. On that day, the cross became the object of God's wrath, God's divine judgment, and for three hours, our Lord suffered the most intense agony, indescribable woe, and unbearable isolation. So again, if I were to summarize it in one word, he experienced hell. Hell came to earth that day, and it was focused on one person, and that was Jesus Christ. For the holy and perfect Son, who never sinned, it must have been unspeakably terrible. His pain, his agony in his soul is indescribable. And then at 3 p.m., three hours later, we read that our Lord raised His voice. In verse 46, Matthew says, in a loud voice, He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's Aramaic. And Matthew translates it for us. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the second miracle, divine separation. Divine separation. Now, the Old Testament originally didn't have chapter numbers or verses. In fact, the New Testament didn't either. Right? They were just books, historical accounts, narratives, poetry, right? letters. So the book of Psalms, a person would know each section of the Psalms by the first verse, first sentence. And so when you quoted the first sentence, you would know what Psalm the person was talking about. Our Lord, by saying, my God, my God, why have, you forsaken, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, the psalm that we read this morning to begin our service. Because that psalm is a psalm of David that prophesizes, predicts the coming Messiah. All the Jews that were present, the Roman soldiers probably had no idea what he was talking about. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, even the nominal Jews knew clearly, being reared up in the study of the Torah, and as, as young, young men and women, they knew that he was quoting Psalm 22. 
The psalm that says, that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day. You do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by men, despised by the people. All who seek, see me mock me. They insult me, shaking their heads. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Written hundreds of years before this event. But the accuracy of the prophecy is amazing. And he's not just quoting Psalm 22. He is experiencing the fulfillment of that psalm on the cross. In this unique and strange miracle, our Lord was crying out in anguish because of the separation he now experienced from his father because of this divine separation that he experienced from his father. He experienced God the Father forsaking him on the cross, turning his back and abandoning him in complete isolation with Christ and our sins. Now, you know, why did Christ, or why did God forsake his son? Why did God forsake his son? Abandonment is a central part of God's judgment. In fact, that's the core aspect of judgment, is it not? Abandonment? That, that is what makes hell, hell. It's an abandoned place. God's grace is not there. God's mercy, God's love, God's presence is not there because God has abandoned it. God abandoned His Son because on the cross our sins were fully laid upon Him. And our God is a thrice holy God who is pure and perfect in all His ways. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is too pure to look on evil. God cannot tolerate wrong. Therefore, because the Son of, Son of God was, was filled with sin, God turned away. Too pure to look upon evil and forsook Him, abandoned Jesus on the cross. Because Christ took upon himself our transgressions and our iniquities, Isaiah 53. 1 Corinthians 15:3, he died for our sins. Galatians 3:13, he became a curse for us on the tree. 1 John 4:10, he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says, God made him who had no sin. To be sin for us. He became sin on man's behalf. Therefore God abandoned him. Forsook him on the cross. Now how did this happen? How can one part of the Trinity. Abandon another? God forsaking God. How is this possible? It's a great mystery. It is said that Luther went into his chambers and he committed himself to solve this mystery of Matthew 27, 46. 
He committed himself. I'm going to solve this paradox, solve this mystery. He spent hours laboriously studying and meditating on this, and he finally came out more confused than when he went in. Now, we know this. The separation was not one of nature, essence, or substance. It was not that kind of separation because God is immutable. He cannot change. Therefore, he cannot separate himself from himself. Secondly, Christ did not in any sense cease to exist as God. He didn't stop being God. Where God forsook just the man Christ. No. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.7 The separation, the way to understand it is that their separation occurred in their relationship. Occurred in their relationship. The intimate relationship, the communion, the fellowship that Jesus Christ enjoyed with God the Father was torn, was broken, was severed. And on the cross, God was no longer Father, but it was just my God. I think I said this last week in the sermon, that when Christ calls upon God the Father, 70 times in the Gospels, it's always Father. That's, that's our Lord's favorite title for God. My Father. Father. Only one time in the Gospels does he call upon God and not use that title. And that is on Calvary. He does not say, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because here on the cross, their relationship as Father, Son is severed. Because of our sins. I believe our Lord's greatest pain on the cross was experienced at this moment. The greatest pain. He writhed in anguish, not because of the lacerations on his back. He wasn't crying out because of the thorns that were that were still piercing his head. Not from the pain of the nails that held him on the cross. All these things were paled in comparison to the pain of being separated from his father. The father that he loved, the father that he honored and revered. That was the greatest pain that Christ experienced. And I believe this was what our Lord dreaded in Gethsemane. Remember Gethsemane? Olive press. Our Lord went to a garden near the olive press and he prayed three times, Lord, take this cup from me. I am sorrowful to the point of death. He dreaded Calvary. It was not the physical torment, but it was the thought of being separate from God the Father. Of being forsaken on the cross and being severed in his relationship with God the Father. That's what he dreaded. You guys remember, maybe we can understand it in this way. Um, in, in human terms, remember when David committed his sin with Bathsheba? And, and for a whole year, he, he, he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He thought nobody knew for a whole year. He just let the sin linger in his heart, in his pretense, just 
uh, went to worship, read the scriptures, lived in sin, he thought nobody knew. And Nathan comes to him and rebukes him, confronts him, and, and calls him on his sin. David in repentance and mourning, he goes to God and he repents in prayer. And that prayer is recorded for us in Psalm 51. The core of that prayer is verse 11. What does David cry out? Do not cast me from your presence. He says, you want my kingdom? Take it. You want my title, my reputation, my possessions? Everything is up for grabs, God. I deserve all of it. Whatever judgment, punishment you have for me, one thing I ask. Do not take, do not cast me from your presence. And he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David was saying, take anything. Punish me in any way you see fit. I can endure any loss, any pain, any grief. But God, do not leave me. Do not forsake me. Well, God didn't forsake David. Instead, he forsook his only son on the cross. That's the second miracle. In verse 47, when those that were standing around heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. One of them got a sponge to relieve pain, put, uh, filled it with wine vinegar. It dulls the sharpness of the pain. Our Lord refuses it. The crowds were waiting by, verse 50, and when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Matthew says that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. This loud cry demonstrates to us that he had considerable strength still left in him. Our Lord did not gradually fade away. His life was not ebbing little by little away from him until it was gone. He made it ev evident that he had the strength to stay alive if he desired, but he cried out and he gave up his spirit. Luke 23:46 records that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That was what he cried out. Matthew says in verse 50, He gave up his spirit. He yielded it up. He let it go. He sent away his spirit. The verb indicates a volitional giving, a voluntary death on the part of Christ. This is thoroughly consistent with our Lord's statements in the Gospels. That in a way... It's not a tragic figure. He's not a victim. His life wasn't taken from him. No, our Lord gave his life. John 10, 18, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up again. Our Lord willingly gave up his life. He gave up his spirit, and this is the third miracle. Our Lord's voluntary death. Christ's voluntary death. You and I can't do that. You and I, we can't just voluntarily die. We can cause, cause our death, but we'll not, we can't cause the end of life. He not only voluntarily committed himself to the hands of sinners, he not only allowed himself to be crucified, but he chose the death. He gave up his life. Where John records in 1930, he 
He says, it is finished. Our Lord's work was done. Lived a perfect life. Dying for the sins of man. And he voluntarily gave up his life. Gave his life for the sins of man. So far we've seen the darkness. We've seen the divine separation. In verse 50 we saw our Lord giving his life as an atoning sacrifice. As a cleansing sacrifice for our sins. Then we see the fourth miracle in verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain is torn. The curtain is torn. The temple refers not to the whole temple, but to the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. This is the innermost place where God and his glory symbolically dwelt. The Holy of Holies and the Holy Place was separated by a huge woven veil. Levitical law said only once a year can a high priest enter into the most holy place. Before he enters, he must confess his own sins and be atoned for his own sins before he can enter. And once in the holy place, he would atone for the sins of all Israel. This ritual had to be repeated once a year. And only once a year, anyone were to enter that place at another time, anyone other than the high priest would die at the spot. Sinful men could not dare come to, come to God, could not dare approach God because of God's holiness and their sins. But, but when Christ died, when he gave up his his soul, his spirit, when he died for, for our sins, the once for all sacrifice was completed. And the kneel for that veil no longer existed. Soon as he died, the first response of God the Father is tearing of the veil in half. By this miracle, God the Father was telling the world that he accepted the sacrifice of his son. That the sacrifice of his son was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins of men. God was telling the world that he approved this sacrifice by this miracle. It's like saying the check is cleared. Your credit card is good. Your application is accepted. It is fulfilled. God by tearing the curtain in two was saying Christ's sacrifice is acceptable. For the atonement of man's sins. Therefore he's inviting sinners to come. By the blood of Christ. By the death of Christ. Enter into the most holy place. To have fellowship with the living God. The writer of Hebrews. Tells us that in Hebrews 10. 11 and 12. Listen to this guys. Day after day. Every priest stands. And performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. Verse 12. But Jesus has offered for all time one sacrifice for our sins. Therefore brothers we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Why? Because by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Therefore, the conclusion is, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance and faith. The 
invitation is given, the sacrifice is accepted, let us therefore enter into the holy place by the blood of Christ. Now note that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. It was not bottom to top. Meaning someone didn't come and, alright, tear this veil, let's enter the holy place. Someone didn't find a way in to God's righteousness. Someone didn't find a way in to, be, be, to, to gain salvation. The initiation of salvation came from God to man. Important to know that the veil was torn from top to bottom. That God is the initiator of salvation. In verse 51, Matthew tells us the earth shook, the rocks split, as Christ gave up his spirit, the tombs broke open. Verse 52, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. This is the fifth miracle. Resurrection of saints. Resurrection of saints. Verse 53 says, they came out of the tombs and after the resurrection even, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Matthew points out, Matthew is the only gospel writer to point this out. Mark, Luke, and John do not mention this. Matthew points out that not all the saints were resurrected, but many were resurrected from the dead. A very difficult miracle to comprehend, to fully understand. But we know that these were holy people, meaning they are, they are the ones who trusted in the Messiah. This miracle points to the future promise that all those who trust in Christ will be raised again. The resurrection of these saints at the death of Christ is the archetype, if you will, or the model or a visual picture of what will happen to all believers. Well, let's go to our final miracle. The sixth and final miracle found in verse 54. When the centurion and all those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. Verse 54. A centurion was an army officer with command over a hundred men. Now this centurion was undoubtedly the one supervising this crucifixion. Undoubtedly, he and some of his troops had kept guard over Christ since the trial in the Peritorium. I believe that he was among the soldiers who arrested Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane so that he witnessed the whole thing from the beginning. And clearly, this centurion and the soldiers around him participated in the torment of Christ, in the scourging of Christ. They would have been the very ones who dressed him in a mock robe. The very ones who placed that crown of thorns on his head. The very ones who blindfolded him, beat him, spat on him, and taunted him. These were the men who nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. They're the ones who cast lots for his piece of clothing. And they're the ones who brazenly taunted him in the midst of his agonies. But as they saw the supernatural darkness, they felt the earthquake, and they saw how Christ endured his sufferings. All of this had a culminating effect upon their, their, their souls. It says in verse 51, they were terrified. 
The Greek word expresses an extreme fright, a kind of panic. The earth was shaking, but their hearts were shaking more. They were frightened. A kind of panic. The soldiers' fears give witness to their awareness of their own sins and their awe to Christ as they're confronted by Christ's holiness. How do we know this? Because of their response. Give verse 54. The centurion and the soldiers exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This is the sixth and final miracle of God on Calvary. The salvation of our Lord's tormentors. The testimony voiced by the centurion here and the soldiers. The testimony is a clear confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. They not only confess Christ the Son of God. Luke 23.47 tells us they began praising God. To me, this is the greatest miracle. Supernatural darkness is not the greatest miracle. It is not the divine separation, divine death, the tearing of the curtain, not even the dead rising from the grave. I think all of us would agree. The greatest miracle in this passage is the salvation of the tormentors of Jesus Christ. It is the most unbelievable that God will save the men who beat his son. That God would save the men who spat on him, mocked him, and crucified him. To me, this is the most amazing miracle on Calvary. Our Lord had seven sayings on the cross, and one of the seven sayings was a prayer. He prayed to, to God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is an answer to God's prayer, to our Lord's prayer. God answered his prayer by forgiving their sins and saving them. God saved that centurion. One moment he saw a sad picture of a common criminal dying on the cross. At the next moment, he saw the Son of God. He saw God's sacrifice for his sins. Well, is God performing miracles today? People want to go all over the world and tell people about these miracles that God is doing. Well, that's not surprising to me. God is performing miracles today. We are surrounded by them. Every Christian here, every person here who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ, who has eternal life, is a miraculous work of God. Because our sins put Christ on the cross, we bear the responsibility for His death. We are culpable for His murder. Just as surely as the centurion who actually drove the nails through His hands and His feet, we are just as guilty. And the forgiveness that God extended on the cross to those who put him to death is the same forgiveness he extends to all of us. Just a few last thoughts. First of all, for 
those of you who have not trusted in Christ, there are some of you today, you look at Calvary and you still see just normal man going through a tragic death, a cautionary tale, if you will. A regular common criminal, maybe, just dying a horrific death. That is That describes you today. And a lot of the truth of God's Word studied this morning, I plead with you to humble yourself this day. Be humbled by your sins. Be humbled by what your sins have caused. And turn to the cross. Trust in the Savior. The soldiers, as they were covered in darkness, saw what others couldn't. They saw the Son of God dying on the cross for the sins of man. I pray for you today that you might also see the Son of God dying for sin. For the believers here, what a sobering study as we approach Easter. That next Sunday we will be celebrating our Lord's resurrection. But we need to be mindful of the price that was paid for that resurrection. The price that was paid to secure our salvation. As we have studied our Lord's death today, may I connect it with last week's sermon. How doctrine is the breeding ground for the deepest worship. How truth is not the enemy of worship, but is the best friend. May you look long and hard at the death of our Lord. And may it deepen your worship of God. May your walk with Christ this week be holy, be pure, be sincere and genuine. As, you've, as we have together looked at and studied the death of our Lord. Second application for you is uh, we have countless reasons for discontentment but we have only one reason to be completely content. Whatever your lot in life, whatever problems or trials or struggles you are going through, if you're a Christian, we need to be completely content because Christ died for us. He died for our sins. We are, we are the most blessed of all men because our sins have been forgiven by the death, the unwarranted death of our Lord and Savior. Thirdly, third application, the reason our Lord died was to make us holy. He died to save us from sin. If the cross does not spur us on to holy living, nothing else will. If the cross of Christ does not compel you to obedience, to purity, to a consecrated life, there is nothing else in Christianity that will. May the truth of, truth of our Lord's cross spur us in our lives to submit our lives completely 
under him, under his reign. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so struck by the reality of our sins as we look upon the body of Christ. It's a visual picture of the heinousness, the ugliness of our sins. We want to so often just look away our sins and forget about our sins and erase them from our memories. But on the cross, we see what our sins have caused the death of the holy and perfect one from Israel, the Redeemer, the King of Kings, lion from the tribe of Judah, our sins cause his death. And yet his death is the means of our salvation. How beautiful is the gospel story. How beautiful is his truth. Lord, we pray for anyone in this room who still spurn that invitation, who still to see a normal man dying on the cross, who still in their hearts shake their fists and scoff and mock at the Holy One. Lord, we join with our Lord's prayer. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Lord, we pray that you would grant them salvation. And we know your mercy is wide enough because you saved the centurion. Lord, Lord, as believers, may the cross of Christ, especially this week, hang upon our hearts heavily. May we, as we study the scriptures, um, in a way experience and see for ourselves the price that was paid to secure our redemption. May these truths deepen our worship. May these truths cause us to be filled with gratitude and contentment and joy, nothing else. And may these, this truth cause us to pursue purity, pursue holiness, uh, pursue a consecrated life devoted to you and to your kingdom. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for your, for your gift of salvation. Paid for us on the cross. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.